Well, if you were here um, last week, we started 1 Timothy chapter 2, and um, I told you that it's a hotly contested section of Scripture. Um, I gave a brief introduction to the entire section that we're looking at, verses 8 through 15, but then we only really study, studied Paul's challenge to the men, which is found in verse, verse 8. But now we're going to dive into the uh, a quote-unquote controversial uh, verses related to the roles of women. And so I just want to reread the passage just to begin with so that we know what we're talking about. And then I'll give another brief introdu- introduction to the scripture before we actually study it. But let's look at the whole section. It really begins in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll read all the way through verse 15. It says this, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Well, if, if you have your finger on the pulse of society, even just a little bit, you can, uh, you can see why this is a debated passage. The reason that you can um, so easily see this is because Paul's meaning here is crystal clear. The fact that people are instantly put off by a passage like this testifies to two truths. One is that it's straightforward. People would not have a problem with this um, if the, the, the alternate views were clearly seen. The second truth I think it testifies to is that the truth that Christians have uh, abandoned biblical accuracy in favor of the culture, and that's happening all around us. The literal historical interpretation of this passage has been the majority view of the church for nearly 2,000 years. And I mentioned last week that the, the feminist movements, which began way back in 1840, so there were three waves of those movements, but they had a tremendous impact on the church. And the Bible, in their view, was seen as the chief obstacle uh, to really the, the progress of women, and so it became the, the, the target. And it wasn't until the 60s, in 1969, that progressive revisionists began, their views began to appear in academic circles. There wasn't really anything before that. And um, these are revised views of these disputed passages that they began to appear and they began to be accepted by the church. And so this is in the church today, and it is a, a view known as evangelical feminism, but more often you'll hear it as egalitarianism. They hold to uh, biblical inerrancy, meaning it's, it's without error, but they've reinterpreted scripture to say that, that man's leadership role, 
that is talked about and particularly passages like this is actually not part of God's original design, that it's a result of the fall in Genesis. And so they'll say there's no such thing as authority and submission between men and women in marriage or in the church or in any other sphere of society. And there are, not surprisingly, all kinds of alternate views of this passage. Some of these alternate views, as I mentioned, have been adopted to the church. One of them is the view that Paul is actually simply wrong here, that what he states is, is, is wrong. And this argument first came into print in 1975. That's fairly recently in human history. But the premise for that argument actually came from Elizabeth Stanton. She's one of the leaders of the first feminist movement, 1840 to 1920. So this goes back. She was one of the ones that helped form the women's Bible. Do you remember me mentioning that, that the women actually formed their own Bible? They weren't biblical scholars, so they didn't go back to the original Greek and interpret it that way. It's more of a collection of um, remarks, a series of remarks on portions of, of Scripture. And Stanton's view of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 was to see them as two contra, contra, uh, contradictory versions of the creation account. She says this, with the first account dignifying the woman and the second having been, quote, written by a wily writer who added this account to put women in their place. And so they would say Paul is wrongly echoing a rabbinical misinterpretation of the second creation account. And the problem with this is that if you have read your Bible at all, you know that Genesis um, two, uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are not two creation accounts. Genesis 1 gives us the creation account. You have the full six days of creation. But Genesis 2 takes us a, a closer, more detailed look at one particular day of creation, day 6, and that specifically of the creation of man and woman. That's all it is. Another argument says that Paul is addressing a feminist movement that existed in Ephesus. Remember, this is happening in Ephesus. Um, and so the prohibitions against women teaching or having authority that he mentions here are really aimed at those feminist extremes. So it's only the extremes, and so it's not against any normal teaching. It's not any against any normal exercise of authority. The problem is, is that there is no evidence that any feminist movement existed in Ephesus. In fact, it was a conventional Roman provincial city. They had male magistrates, and they had a pagan cult hierarchy that was dominated by men. There's just no historical evidence for that. Another argument is uh, seen particularly to attack verse 12, where Paul says, and I do not permit a woman, to say that's just Paul's personal opinion. I don't permit it. And that to not permit something means that he may permit it later, that he just doesn't permit it now. Those are the kind of arguments that come forward. But I've mentioned this before. Paul just never gives us his opinion. Never do you find opinion here. This is his apostolic command to, to Timothy. And we know that all scripture is God-breathed. And so we don't get to pick and choose what passages of scripture we say are inspired and which are not. Another argument says that when Paul references women or, wi or a woman in this passage, he's actually only talking to wives. And so the, the, the teaching issue or authority issue that he's talking about is just domestic. It doesn't have any place in the church or in society. Well, Paul also addresses modest apparel for women in this passage. He's not just talking to wives. Probably the biggest argument that most often I hear and often in the church circles is that Paul's prohibition is simply a cultural thing. 
He's just addressing something cultural. And, you know, women didn't have the opportunities for education as they do today, they'd say. Um, they, they were suppressed. They were mostly learners in that day. And I would say to, to some degree, that's, that's actually true. But today, women can go to seminary, women can get a degree, and they can become a pastor, and they can teach just like anybody. It just had to do with the culture. That's what they'll say. Well, the issue is this, that the rationale for Paul's whole argument, whole argument here um, doesn't address any kind of cultural uh, limitations at all. Rather, he goes all the way back to Genesis, to the beginning, to the created order account, and you'll see that when we get to there. So it shows us it's not a cultural thing, it's a creation thing, it's a created order uh, thing. And many times, Galatians 3.28 is brought up by feminist movements to, as sort of a banner verse to say this verse sort of banishes all other scriptures we see, particularly from Paul or Peter, about women. Because they'll say that verse does, does away with gender roles. Well, let's look at Galatians 3.28. It says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I would read that verse and I'd say, that's absolutely true. Amen. We all are one in Christ. The Bible does not teach inequality. Everyone who is in Christ is equal. We have an equal inheritance in Christ. There's a spiritual equality that exists regardless of your station in life. If you are a slave, he's saying, you are the same station in, in God's economy as the richest person. If you're a female, you're equal with a male. We're all equal. The, the, the playing field is made level at the foot of the cross. That's what he's saying. This does not do away with gender distinctions. And none of the major church fathers nor in church history do we find anyone teaching any such thing. It's a modern day approach. And so what we have to do when we approach a passage like this is uh, the same way I introduced last week, we have to approach it with a spirit of humility. We got to go into this saying, you know, um, I fear God. I want to be obedient to him. I want to know what he's trying to teach us. Um, we want to seek to understand. And I want to mention again that men and women, we are, we are equal. We just have different responsibilities. God has given us different roles, and we should seek to fulfill God's design, His created order. We should seek to fulfill His design there. So let's ask for the Lord to just be with us as we begin our study of this, that we would have the hearts open to the Spirit's leading. God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we... Um, we know that we come to passages in Scripture from time to time that are difficult to approach, difficult to teach through. I, I certainly wouldn't just handpick this out of the blue to teach on, but Lord, as we go through Scripture, um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, we come to passages like this, and we want to, we want to uh, hear from you, Lord. This is such an important area for us to understand as men and women in the church, and so we just pray that your Spirit would be with us that we would have a, a spirit of humility, but also that we would try to shed, Lord, any of the cultural, um, the cultural things that have sort of attached themselves to us and instead seek to understand what your word clearly says here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give a quick recap, if I could, just to help us um, understand Paul's meaning here. 
when, when, when God's people meet together for public worship, that's his focus here. When they meet together, their prayers and their, their worship time, their inner posture should reflect God's heart. And his heart was revealed there in verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And he addresses the men first. He admonishes the men to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. That was verse 8, which we looked at last week. And so men, the, the, we looked at the proper posture of the men first. Men are to set the examples for others to follow. That, that is God's design here when it comes to public worship. And he expects men to live holy, upright lives. He expects that of us. And so he says, these men, they should be praying everywhere. That means everywhere where the church is gathering, um, they should be the men leading the way in prayer and in worship. And so they're to be prayerful men. That's his point here. But if they want to reflect that heart of God, which desires all men to be saved, that inward posture has to be a pure posture. We have to have a pure heart. We can't be living double lives. In other words, we're setting an example and so lifting up holy hands, we're, see, we're seeing that men are to be pure men. We're to be prayerful men, but also pure men. And that means men in the church, and, and particularly elders of the church who lead the church in that role, are to be holy in their activities of their lives, but also in the attitudes of their hearts. It's not just outward that God is looking for. We just heard this. He knows the depths of our hearts. You don't fool him. And so men are to be pure men, but, but also we're to have this posture that's without wrath and doubting. I mentioned last week, a lot of times men in particular, women too, but men struggle with anger. It's an easy power tool for us to, to pull out of our tool belt to, to, to use to get what we want. That's manipulation, by the way. That's what that's called. I'll just show my anger. I'll show a force. A show of force will get me what I want. He says you can't have men that have a, a conditioned emotion to anger leading. There, there's no example there. And so these men need to be lifting holy hands without wrath and quarreling. These have to be peaceful men, in other words. They're to set the spiritual tone of the church. It must be pure in its worship. And so this is helpful because straight away he addresses the women of the church as we now turn our attention to the proper posture of the women in verse 9. And right away you can see this transition. He says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. So in like manner also, or likewise, your Bible might say, refers us back to verse 8. He's addressing a new aspect of the same subject. He addressed the posture of the men, and now he wants the proper posture of the women. And he says they should adorn themselves in modest apparel. And you might be looking at this as, okay, why is he talking about women's clothing here? What is this about? Well, in, in general, and, and I'm going to just put this note there, Paul is speaking in generalities through this whole thing. So even when he gets to the end, he talks to women about childbearing. I understand not all women will have children. Not all women will be married, but he's speaking in generalities, okay? So please don't come up to me at the end and say, well, that's not me. I understand that. There are exceptions. But in general, this is truth, okay? The outer adornment of women in particular, it makes a bigger statement than the outer adornment of men. None of us can, can pretend we don't know that. That is, a, that is a fact. That's why women's fashion shows and magazines are such a big deal. Yeah, men have the same thing these days. But you, you, you look at those things and the statements are being made. You look at fashion shows, and it, it, it's, it's quite a range, isn't it? You go from the gaudy 
and sort of ridiculous, outrageous, to the frumpy and shabby looks, to even immodest, seductive. And the reason is they understand statements are being made by what they wear. A woman's adornment can tell you a lot about her inner person. And men and women do understand this, and particularly other women do look at women and, and judge them and try to figure out their motivations based upon their wardrobe. If that weren't true, half of daytime television would have no drama. <laughs> Just watch it. Oh, did you see what she's wearing around my husband? That cat. I mean, that's the kind of st that we all know what they're talking about. Sadly, you, see, you hear about this in cases of things like even sexual assault. Often the attire of the victim is mentioned. And this, let me just state, this does not mean men are not responsible for their actions. Those men need to be held accountable. Absolutely. But whether they're aware of it or not, women are sending messages by their outer adornment, way so more than men. And so Paul is looking at the corporate gathering of men and women coming together for the purpose of worshiping God. And he says to the ladies, he says, you need to really think about what you wear. You need to take careful preparation for worship. And we're going to look at four things that he's going to look at here with women. And this, this first one is that their adornment, their outward adornment, it, it necessitates careful preparation. Their inner preparation is the first point here. It's their inner preparation because the outer reflects the inner and Paul uses four key words, so bear with me because we need to look at these words that he uses because they will help us to understand what he's trying to communicate. He says that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. That word adorn is cosmeo. Can you guess what kind of word we have from that? Cosmetic. Okay, it's cosmetics. That's where we get that. And cosmeo is to put in order, to arrange, to make ready, to prepare. Makes sense? So there, there is important preparation needed when we gather to worship corporately. And women in particular um, must appropriately put herself in order or make herself ready for worship. That's his point. And part of that preparation does involve the outside. It does involve what they're wearing on the outside. And he says they are to adorn themselves in modest apparel. It's a very similar word. It's cosmios. Cosmos, and it means well-arranged or orderly. It comes from the noun cosmos, which is usually translated world, but it means order. So this is an orderly arrangement. The same word is actually used in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verse 2, about a characteristic of a bishop, of an overseer of a church. In verse 2, it says, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior. Of good behavior there is cosmios. It's that same word. He must be orderly. And so should women be. What is Paul getting out here? Is he trying to establish a dress code for women? No. But for a woman, and again, broadly speaking, there is generally more that goes into the preparation for a woman than for a man. I can get ready, showered, dressed, and in the car in 10 minutes. My wife a little bit longer than that. There's, there's more to it. There's the makeup. There's the hair. There's the clothing. Have you ever been to a wedding? Yeah? 
I've never been to a wedding. I've done a lot of weddings. I've never been to one where the man had the hair appointment. Yeah. <laughs> it's the ladies. There's more preparation because why? Want, they want to say something when they walk down that aisle. They're making a statement. That's why it was so important about the color of white for so long, wasn't it? That's kind of gone out the window. It meant purity. It made a statement. It said something to that husband. I've saved myself for you. So there is preparation, a well-arranged or orderly apparel of the outer woman reflects the orderly inner woman. A properly prepared outside reflects a properly prepared heart. That's what he's getting at. In fact, the Vines Expository Dictionary says this about that word, the well-ordering is not of dress and demeanor only, but of the inner life. Now, this is even seen more clearly with the next word he gives us in the next phrase. He says, with propriety and moderation. Now, propriety, it only appears here in the New Testament. It's a very weird word. And if you have a King James in front of you, the word is there. It's shamefacedness. Very strange word. Or bashfulness. It's modesty mixed with humility. It's shamefastness is the modesty which is fast-rooted to the character of the woman. Her orderly apparel must be something that would not distract anyone from worship. And if she were to learn that what she wore on the outside distracted anyone from worship, she'd be shamed, shamefaced. That's, the, that's what it carries here. My wife and I were in charge of a youth ministry for years in Grace, at Grace Chapel back in the States. And my, my wife loved this, this job. Every year we would take about 100 teenagers in the summer in California to the river for camping, and we'd float down the river and do all that kind of stuff. So you, you can imagine the kind of things ladies were trying to wear in that environment. And my wife loved the job of, of doing the modesty talk with the young girls, her favorite part of it. No, she's shaking her head. She, she hated that. And she would have to sit with these ladies and talk about what they wear, what the short shorts and the tube tops and, you know, not two pieces and do one piece. And, and uh, that was so hard to, because you're trying to communicate to young people whose only influence is from the world of what beauty is. This is what you should dress like. This is how you should look. And she was trying to communicate something quite different. That modesty does have a very important place in the life of a believer. And this is the idea that if you were to distract people from worship, and by the way, we were there for that. Yes, we floated down the river and we had fun, but we would gather together and we would sing praises to God. We would, we would study his word and the women would wear these things in the midst of that. We're trying to get this point across is that you don't want to be a distraction. That's the word propriety. And he gives us one final word to round out the whole idea. He says, with propriety and moderation. That word moderation is sophrosune. It's soundness of mind or self-control. In fact, the word is actually used again in our passage and translated as self-control. It's the very last word of the, the, whole, the whole passage, verse 15. So self-control is the idea that it's, it's the inner self-government that constrains, it reigns in the passions and desires. Women are to make sure that they're exercising self-control over their own passions and desires in the choice of clothing. In other words, you might have a woman who desperately wants a husband, and she might be tempted by that desire to dress in such a way as to attract the attention of a man. But that desire is often influenced by what the world says would be an attractive attire. That's the issue he's trying to get at. And so if a woman were to dress that way, then her dress would be wrong on two fronts. Her motivation for her attire is wrong. Her motivation is what? Attraction. 
but also the effect of her attire is wrong. It's distraction. So she's going to attract, and she's also going to distract. It's wrong in two places. And when we come together for worship, neither of those things should be present. We're here to gather before the holy God. We're here to worship Him. And Paul adds then some of those things when women adorn themselves, some of those things that might seek to attract or distract. He lists them, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, obviously, women, you, you can do up your hair. You can wear jewelry. My wife better wear the jewelry. It costs a lot. I mean, you know, like wear that thing. But Paul is not forbidding these things. That's not his point. But these things in particular, in particular there in Ephesus, fancy hairdos or gold. Look, look at the things he's listing. Pearls, expensive clothing. Those were meant to draw attention. Those were meant to flaunt wealth. And in Paul's day, in particular in Ephesus, interestingly enough, that might have been similar attire to the, the prostitutes, the cult prostitutes. They wore those things to attract men. Here's Paul's whole point. What is your motivation for what you wear? It should not be to attract or to distract. In fact, a woman who tries to attract with these outer things is actually attracting the wrong type of man. That's a hard, that's a hard message to get to young people, isn't it? The, the world is screaming so loudly as this is how you're going to find a mate. This is how guys are going to like you. You know, wear these things. But I love how the attractive woman is described in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 4. He says something similar here. He says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. See, he says, don't let it merely be outward. Of course, of course you can look nice. Of course you can put things and you can do your hair, but don't let it just be that. Don't focus on that because he says inside there's a hidden person of the heart. There's incorruptible beauty there, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. In other words, her beauty is seen in her inward virtue, not simply her outer adornment. And I know our world makes fun of that kind of statement today. Oh, she's beautiful on the inside. And you go, oh, great, you know, what's that saying? But it's actually biblical. He's not saying she's not beautiful on the outside. She's still beautiful on the outside, but the greater beauty should be on the inside. And ladies, if you want to attract a godly man, you should be seeking to radiate the inner beauty above the outer. And men, I'm just going to say a word to you as well. You're like, no, you had us last week. But we, we, we should seek that as well. We should be looking to the inward beauty that's not to say that outward doesn't have anything to play in it at all. But it's the inward beauty that is the precious thing in the sight of God, and it should be in us as well. The world just stresses external beauty according to its standards and its sets of values, but a godly woman should adopt a new set of values. And what should set them apart is not necessarily their outward adornment of clothing, but their outward adornment of good works, which is his next point here in verse 12. It's not just their inner preparation, but their outer profession. What are they professing on the outside? What's the testimony that people are getting from what they wear here? Look at verse 10, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Women who profess godliness, meaning they profess to love Christ, they profess to, to have a desire to worship for him, cannot be consumed by fashion. 
The primary concern will be for the outer testimony or outer adornment of good works. I want to just clarify good works really quickly because a lot of people are confused about good works and related to Christianity. Why are good works important? First of all, you and I are, are created for good works. That's a fascinating thing to think about. Ephesians 2 10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You and I are created for the good works. That's mind boggling. But secondly, scripture tells us that Jesus died, that we might be a people that he would redeem for himself, that would be zealous for good works. And in Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Good works comes from the redeemed person. Third reason is that good works bring glory to God. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Good works do not earn us salvation. Do you see here? All of these verses reflect someone who is already saved, already a believer. Good works are a result of salvation. And so women, he says, let the outer adornment of good works, let that be your chief concern. Let that be your main focus. All right, well, that's all I'm going to say about that section. Let's get to the really tough bit. Paul addressed the uh, inner preparation of women, the outer uh, profession of women, but now he's going to address, I think, one of those outer professing works, one of the distinguishing marks of a godly woman, and I'm going to say it this way, it's her humble su submission. I know we, we don't like the S word today, but I'm going to talk about that just a bit. Look at verses 11 and 12. Let a woman, woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, what, what Paul says here could, could not be more clear and straightforward, okay? And yet these verses has, have become a, a breeding ground of creative interpretation, as I mentioned earlier. And I mentioned last week, this has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the woman's capability. Nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with her competence, her essence as a woman, her worth, her value. Nothing to do with her capability or ability at all. It has to do with God's created order. And I mentioned earlier some of those arguments that people come up with to try and change Paul's meaning. And those that look at these verses propose that Paul, in this case, and, and, and Peter and others, they were male chauvinists, and that they were simply espousing their personal opinion in certain parts of Scripture, or that they were teaching culturally determined customs rather than divinely revealed truth. And here's the problem with that approach, and I want to say this again. If you go down that road, it makes you the judge of what is divinely revealed truth and what is not. And we just can't determine that. The Bible tells us very plainly, all scripture is God-breathed, meaning inspired by God. And so we have to approach all scripture as divine and therefore inerrant, meaning incapable of being wrong. And so we can't just go in there and pick and choose. So, so why then is this such a controversial issue? Simply put, it's worldliness that creeps in the church. That, that's just what it is, guys. It's worldly Christians who, who, who try to find a way to justify their worldliness. But we need to be a people who are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and not conform to the pattern of this world. Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? 
That's the pattern of this world. But God's word transforms our understanding and thinking. So let me just, as we go into this, let me reiterate that as far as personal worth and abilities and essence and, and spirituality and all of those things, Paul makes no distinction. Men and women are absolutely equal. I think the problem is today that people can't seem to see that men and women can be equal and yet still have different responsibilities and roles. But that is what the Bible teaches, okay? So here's the question. Why did God place men over women in terms of um, authority? It's for order and complementation, those two things. It's order and complementation. It's not based on superiority. That's what our world says. Oh, men are, think they're superior. Not at all. It's order and complementation. And our world understands this. We use it everywhere, and yet we come to the Bible and talk about it, and people lose their minds. A company must have submission of authority for it to run well. You are answering to somebody. An army, my son's in the army, an army must have submission of authority for that unit to operate as a unit and to carry out the commands or they'll lose the war. This is a principle that's meant to be universal, but we just can't expect a godless secular society to model that. So where are Christians supposed to model it? We're commanded to model that in the home and in the church. A woman in a church, she may be better qualified to lead, maybe more intelligent, maybe a better speaker or a better theologian, even more spiritual. But if she wants to be obedient to God's design, if she wants to exhibit the godly conduct called for here, she'll submit to male leadership of the church. And those that have a problem with submission, I think, fail to recognize that submission is modeled in the very Godhead that we serve. In the triune God, there is submission. Paul tells us about it in 1 Corinthians 11.3. He says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Would you all agree that we are meant to submit to Christ, that he's our head? We'd all say, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Would you all agree that, that Christ submitted to the Father? We read that earlier in Hebrews 10. Certainly he did. He came to do the will of the Father. Over and over again, you read the, the Gospels, and particularly the Gospel of John, you can't escape it. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. He says, I've come down from heaven to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm submitting to the will of the Father. Jesus submitted to himself, submitted himself to the Father as his head. And then Paul says, but the head of woman is, is man. So here's why this is so important and why I show you this first. Paul has tied those three aspects of, of authority together. They're inseparably linked. You cannot reject one without rejecting the other. You can't go in here and reject that, that women are, are to be submissive to a man without rejecting Christ's submission to the Father or without rejecting our submission to, to Christ. You have to either accept all three or reject all three. You, you, can't, you can't pick and choose. And Paul is saying something that's even greater here. Let me just say this, that the principle of authority and submission, it pervades the entire universe. Think about it. In man's submission to, to, to man, there's authority and there's submission in, in that relationship. And in, in a man's relationship to God, there's authority and submission. And even remarkably, in God's relationship to God, there's authority and submission. It's through the whole universe. So what Paul is saying here is, is straightforward. For a woman to demonstrate her godliness is to accept God's created order. 
and to submit to the leadership of men, and in the area particularly of teaching. Teaching is an authority position in the church. We're not there yet, but chapter 3, we'll go through the leaders of the church called bishops or elders or overseers. And the qualification of an elder of the church, one of those qualifications is that he must be able to teach because teaching is a leadership role. So women here are told to take up the role of a learner. Now, that doesn't mean that men don't learn, that we're not learners. Of course we are. We're learning. I learn all week long when I'm studying. I don't know all this by heart. You guys think that. You think too much of me. I'm learning all the time. The Holy Spirit's teaching me all the time. Men are to be learners as well, but men can take up the teaching role in the church because it's an authority role. Does that make sense? Now, here's a side note. Women can teach. They're supposed to teach in the church. Titus 2 talks about older women being teachers of good things. So women can teach. They can teach other women. They're to teach the younger women. They can teach children. Those are the places that they can use that gift of teaching, and they should. And they do a good job of it, and particularly the women of our church do. But what about this word silence? That might throw people off. He uses it twice here. Does it mean that a woman is not even permitted to, to speak in the corporate setting? Well, let's look at this word silence. It's hesuhia, and it is quietness. It's tranquility from within. He actually uses it in two other places in the New Testament, and it clearly means settle down, uh, undisturbed, not unruly. This is not silence as in don't speak. It's the gentle and quiet spirit of 1 Peter 3 that we looked at. This is a woman who's, who's not fighting against God's design, not fighting against what he has desired for his church, but accepting it. She's submissive to it. She is tranquil about it. And it's to God's design, which Paul refers to, to try and substantiate his entire argument here. He goes all the way back to Genesis and God's created order, and he gives us two reasons for his instructions in verses 11 and 12. And um, the first is this, it's, it's man's priority in creation. And we see that here in verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's all he says. <laughs> man's priority in creation. That's his evidence. That's his rationale for saying everything he said. Well, Adam was created first and then Eve. He bases all his view of male-female relationships in the church on the creation account recorded in Genesis chapter 2. It's simply this. The roles I've laid out in the church are a product of God's fundamental design in creation. Adam was formed first and then Eve. God, think about this, could have created Adam and Eve together at the same time, but he didn't. He created Eve for Adam to be his helper. And God desires that order that he did the creation in Genesis to be reflected in his church. Remember, it's the house of God. It's the church of the living God. It's not my church. These aren't my rules. It's his house. It's his church. Another side note to this point, the created order was not a result of the fall. It was established before the fall. The created order is established in Genesis chapter 2. That's when we find out about the order of creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve. But the fall happens when? Genesis chapter 3, which is where Paul finds his second point, and he communicates it in verse 14. And this is the woman's priority at the fall. 
So his whole argument is based on man's priority in creation. He was formed first, but also woman's priority at the fall. She was deceived. Look at verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, this might seem a bit confusing, but Paul is simply registering some observations, basic observations from the Genesis narrative. And I want to take you there briefly before we run out of time here to Genesis chapter 3. So you can see it for yourselves. Genesis chapter 3, go all the way back to the first book of the Bible. And we'll look at the third chapter. So in Genesis chapter 2, we don't have time to read that. That's where God created Adam. He gave him the command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then he created Eve. And then you have uh, chapter 3 and the beginning of the fall. In chapter 3, it says this, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of the tree of the garden, of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now here we see the first violations of God's intended design. God gave the command to Adam to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He, he passed that on to, to, to Eve, um, and that's evidenced by the fact that she, she said that to the, the serpent. Well, here's the command we were given. But here's the issue. Eve stepped out from the leadership and protection of her husband, and she became vulnerable. And instead, she obeyed who? The serpent. Do you see? She, she ate. She ate. Their reversal of role began there. But the reversal of roles was made complete when Adam violated his leadership role, and he followed her in her sin. She gave him the fruit. And then he ate. It was not he who was deceived, though. And so what is Paul trying to say? He's not trying to say, so women are very gullible, so they can't lead. That's not, that's not what he's saying. I've heard people say that. That's not his point here at all. What he's saying is that this was a willful attempt to overthrow the created order because of what she hoped to get. Why did she eat? What was her motivation? Her eyes would be open and she would be like God. Why was she deceived? Because it was connected to something she desired. You're never deceived because of something you don't desire. You're deceived because of desire. You desire something. She desired something that was outside of this, her sphere. You'll be like God. I'll be greater than my husband for sure then. I'll be like God. What Paul is saying is really quite profound. The fall was not simply a result of man's disobedience because they ate some fruit. Although that's true but it was actually from violating God's appointed roles for men and for women. Adam was no less guilty than Eve. Just, just hear me when I say that. In fact, Paul, elsewhere, 
puts the blame squarely on the shoulders of Adam for sin. In Romans 5, you just read that, 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, we just read this, God sought out Adam when he came. He didn't look for Eve. He said, where are you, to Adam, looking for the man? That's because he was the head, and he's the one that's responsible. Paul's point is that the fall came about through deception, and it was Eve who was deceived because she came out from under Adam's uh, leadership and protection. And that's why part of the curse for women, because remember, God curses the serpent, God curses the man. Part of the curse for, for women is that there would be a power struggle between her and her husband. I mean, you can just see it there in chapter 3, verse uh, 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Here it is. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Your husband will have that leadership role. He will be that headship, but you're going to desire it instead. There's going to be a power struggle the rest of your life. Now, I think this is fundamental to understanding this whole passage. Paul's calling women back to the created order of things in this passage. He points them to the place which God has designed for them from the very beginning to find true fulfillment, to find divine blessing. And you know where it is, of all the places? It's the home. You hear completely the opposite today, but that's where he directs them. It's their privileged contribution. Verse 15. Go back to our passage. Verse 15. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, I will tell you, admittedly, this is a very difficult verse to understand. It is one of the most difficult in all of the New Testament to interpret because of Paul's use of words here. It's proof that Paul is not always explicit as we would like him to be, like he's already been up to this point. And I'm not going to go through all the possible views for the sake of time, but I am going to give you what I think makes the most sense in the context, and I'll share with you uh, why this passage is so difficult. It's mostly centered around two words, the first being saved. Yeah? Paul says, she'll be saved. And why it's hard is because he says, he uses the word sozo, which is to keep safe, to, to keep it safe and sound, or to, to rescue someone from danger or uh, destruction. It's a broad term. It's used in the New Testament by Christians primarily for the main thing we're glad we're saved from, eternal damnation. It referred to salvation. So mostly through no, new, the New Testament, not all the time, sozo is used of our salvation. And so the question is, is Paul saying that women get salvation through having babies? No, because that would violate the rest of Scripture. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. God. We, we understand that, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, not by works which we have done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing, rebirth, and re renewing of regeneration. So it's not, it's not what we uh, do. So I think it's the broad meaning of the term, as we just put up there, that Paul has in mind. It carries the idea of spiritual preservation and protection. But there's another word that makes this hard, and it's the word childbearing. It is technogonia. It's bearing children, but it implies the full duties of motherhood. So I don't just think it means having babies. You'll be saved if you have babies. It's motherhood. How will women be saved through raising children? How does that happen? Well, here's my understanding of Paul's point. The woman was deceived because she stepped out from the, um, her God-given role. Protection, leadership from her husband. She stepped out of that. She was vulnerable to deception, and that resulted in pretty drastic consequences. 
So how can women protect or preserve, you say it that way, themselves from a similar mistake or even that stigma of being the the ones who were deceived? I think it's simply this, by remaining within their God-given sphere. Remain there, devoting yourselves to the the privileged responsibility you have, ladies. The world, unbelievably, tells you that if you choose to remain home and raise children, you have settled. You've gone to the bottom of the barrel. Or worse, I've heard you've accepted a prison sentence. That's our world's view. That if you go and pursue a career, no, no, there's where where real fulfillment will be found. Can I tell you, I have not talked to a woman yet who found that she had greater fulfillment in her career than in raising her kids. Now, this is not to say, please hear me when I say this, that women can't pursue a career, that you can't have a secular job. By all means, you can do that. But hear me when I say this, it better not be at the expense of your role in the home. That's what he's saying there. And our world's view is that that's not a place for, for, for women. We were watching a stupid movie even last night, wasn't it? All these... Uh, Upper East Side women in New York City, and none of them were parenting. They all had nannies, but they called themselves mothers, but they were never in the home with the kids because the world says something different. You'll find greater fulfillment out there. And again, you can, you can do that, but do you know what? God has given you, ladies, an amazing privilege. You bring people into the world. <laughs> it's incredible. And you have the great privileged responsibility of raising the next generation of godly men and women. And the reason is, it's the women who have the greatest influence on the lives of our children. Men, you're, you're, you need to be in the home. We do have a role to play. But isn't it true that uh, women have just that nurturing, motherly aspect that is so special and precious for, for their children? That's why you hear of people who, on their deathbed or, or about to die, cry out for mom. It's true. They love their moms. We love our, our moms. So great is the responsibility of childbearing that in Titus 2, Paul says that older women are to be teachers of good things. I mentioned that earlier, but look at the good things they are to teach. In Titus 2, 4 to 5, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. He doesn't tell the women to teach women how to be successful in the world. He says to teach them how to be successful in the home. That's what you older women are to teach. You you can teach those other things, but that doesn't matter. God wants you to teach, here's what motherhood looks like. Here's what it looks like to be a biblical wife. Your women, the the, the women here that have children and and choose to, to make them the priority, you're making an eternal contribution. But notice this, they must accept this role and continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. I don't want to pass over those words. They will be saved. They will protect their their, their future. They will make that contribution. They will make that difference if you accept the role in faith. That means in trusting God, not the world. Trust in His design over and above the design of the times. God has designed you with that gift. It's a privilege. Take it. He says, if you continue in love, that's a willing acceptance of the role. I will put everything I have into this. He says, you'll make a contribution if you continue in holiness. That's understanding that I am separated unto God for this particular role. God's designed me for this. And with self-control, which we looked at earlier, 
exercising your own passions and desires here. So ultimately, to wrap it up, this passage is not about male or female superiority. It's not about suitability for leadership. It's not even about power. You know what it's about? Dying to self. That, that's what it's about. It's, it's dying to my own desires and needs and wants. And Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 4.10. He says, we're always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? That the life of Jesus also may, may be manifested in our body. I've got to remember the sacrifice Christ made for me. I'm always carrying that about so that I'll be a sacrifice for him. I want to manifest that in my life. But you know what? Our world, it's just constantly telling us to go and get what you want. Go and get what you deserve. And the message of Scripture is quite different. I'm going to end with a quote from R. Kent Hughes. I think I have it on the screen here. It says this. This is about fidelity to God's word. This is about inviting God's word to shape the life of the church rather than the intrusive winds of culture. And make no mistake, if we do not let the Bible do it, the culture will. And that is so true. Ultimately, I think it's about the gospel. I think it's a gospel issue. Paul's concern here is with public worship. His concern is, is that it reflect God's heart, who, who desires all men to be saved and to come knowledge of the truth. And so I think Paul believed that when the church joyfully, willfully accepts the, the roles he created for us, the created order, then I think the gospel continues in true power. I do. Because it looks different than the world. And we see that that's a dead end. It doesn't work. Our world's in chaos right now. We're supposed to come back to the created order. God's designed it to fit perfectly and beautifully. And I will say this about our women in this, in this church. Can I just say, like, like, you are modeling these things. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir beautifully. You're doing such a great job. I love our women. I really do. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. It speaks truth even to uh, difficult things. I'm sure there's some some here who found that hard to swallow, looking at a man, teaching about male leadership. Lord, I, I just pray that you show them that's not, that's not my desire. It's not my rule. I'm not trying to fulfill some ego trip. We want to fulfill your desire for the church. We want to model it well. And I just thank you for the women who do. They're just beautiful. And um, we see so much love and support here. I don't think I've ever run into anyone who, who has told me about how suppressed they feel. Leadership is about responsibility, and it's about servanthood. And I just pray that the men would model that. I pray that the women would see that that's a beautiful thing to follow. We thank you for your word, and we pray that you're glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen.